After manning the helm of Africa's largest TMT sector-focused fund manager for nearly a decade, Brandon Doyle seems to have thoroughly shed any visible traces of his punk rock past. Since co-founding Convergence Partners in 2006, Brandon and his team, many of whom are chartered accountant types like him, have built an impressive track record of developing new investment opportunities and adding value to existing investments across the entire life cycle of ICT assets in Africa. In this installment of Africa Tech Conversations, Brandon shares some highlights from his stellar career in finance, which features lengthy stints at firms like Nedbank and Anglo-American. He also hints at elements of the secret sauce that's allowed his company to lay claim to the title of impact investor and be widely considered a leading player within Africa's ICT infrastructure venture capital scene. This is African Tech Conversations. Let's start with something easy, like, can you think to a specific coloring book from your primary school days? Okay, do you have something in your head? Yes. Okay. Did you color inside the lines? Yes, very much. You know, so, back to the classroom where that coloring book's sitting right now. Um, how would the kids in that class describe you? Well, I guess in this context, a little bit only retentive, I, I would suspect. But uh, quiet uh, and calm. And what grade is this class? Uh, I'm, I'm a bit old school, right? So I still speak in standard. So I guess I'm thinking of like standard two, standard three. Maybe not. Maybe it was earlier than that. <laughs> grade one or grade two. What were some of your influences then? I guess my biggest influence then would have been my mom. Yeah, I'd grown up uh, as an only child and uh, also with a single parent. So my mom was it, and uh, she's an artist, and uh, so I kind of gravitated towards some of her interests. She didn't inspire me from a business point of view at all, from a creativity and just a human value system point of view. My mom was it. And where did you get into music? Because word is you, ha- you were in a band. <laughs> Life looked very different for you some years ago. In the general family I came from, there was a lot of people who were kind of talented either musically or and, and other forms of the arts. Um, and then I fell in with a few friends at school that were similarly disposed, and we kind of just started doing stuff together and uh, put a band together and had dreams of touring the world, but you know, a chartered accountancy intervened. Well, you toured the world in other ways, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, and I'm having fun touring the world right now. So tell me where you grew up, because I've got this fantastic picture. I just need a city or a town or a country to, you know, to start filling in the blanks. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a KZN guy. I grew up in, I was originally born in Marisburg, but uh, mostly raised in the Durban area. How different is what you're doing now to what you thought you'd, be, you'd end up doing? I guess not terribly much. My hope was always to be able to do something that was a combination of financial and creative. Initially, I, got, I wanted to be an architect, to be honest. Uh, which meant colouring the lines is quite an important thing. That's what this is about. You know, investing across Africa, there's a significant degree of creativity required because you're creating the opportunities as you go. There's a, a strong financial bent to it as well, of course, in terms of making sure you're investing in the right things and generating the right returns, have the right risk models. So I'm pretty sure if I was told when I was eight this is what I'll be doing, I'd be pretty happy with that. We'll take it from someone who dropped out of accounting as a major at Infocity. It doesn't sound very creative to me. <laughs> yeah, accountancy. I think a lot of people have a have a, a view of accounting, and maybe it's a relatively negative one. 
but in many senses it's a it's a bedrock right it's like maths at school it's stuff you have to do to get a fundamental set of knowledge and a fundamental set of principles to be able to build on so for me it was always a means to an end and i think many accountants see it like that there are very few accountants who end up being a pure accountant having qualified as one yeah, in, the, in the south african context and way lesser degree across across the african continent uh, the ca qualification is always perceived as something like an mba equivalent here on the ground and that's how i saw it at the time I've certainly read uh, that relative to many other bleeding markets in Africa and other parts of the world, South African boards tend to appoint more CAs as CEOs and, and you know, MBAs, like you say. Certainly looking at the list of people involved here, uh, your team certainly seems to feature quite a few of these CA types. And I was wondering why. Part of it is actually, it wasn't necessarily completely a strategy to go out there and hire only CA type people. Although a small business, you can't afford to get your hiring wrong. Uh, because one wrong person in a small team is is a big problem. My hiring philosophy has always been to hire people I know, either directly or one degree of separation, as I call it, so people who I know through somebody who I know and trust. Uh, and as it turns out, many of those people happen to be chartered accountants because those are the people I've worked with or have had access to via others. Um, so it wasn't really a great design. In fact, I think in the last while we've we've tried quite hard to kind of go beyond that grouping uh, is a sector-focused in, uh, in investor. You really do need to have access to skills beyond just the financial skills. Um, so of late, uh, you're starting to see a few names crop up in our team that maybe come from some different backgrounds. Right. Now, before you tell me about Convergence Partners, what you do here and how you do it, uh, walk me through you know, some of your professional history. Uh, in addition to that, who taught you some of these lessons? Yeah, let's start with NetBank. You, you were head of investment banking? I headed up the investment banking uh, unit, which is really the on-balance sheet private equity book of, of the bank, as well as the, the emerges and acquisitions advisory team. Um, and I think, look, NetBank is a good place to start in terms of the, uh, where this business originated out of. The origins of Convergence Partners start at NetBank. I was lucky to meet, meet up with my, my chairman, Andy Lengaba. He was a client of the bank, and I was his advisor. And really, it was a relationship that from the get-go just gelled, so much so that after a couple of years of doing his advisory work, we went along to NetBank and said, I think we need a bit of a different business model here. Thankfully, NetBank supported us in that. And uh, so we put conversions together, um, raised capital from NetBank, uh, did it with their blessing, although I don't, don't think they uh, liked the fact that they were losing a few people, uh, but ultimately they were gaining a client and, uh, and it's a relationship that worked really well. So that was the nexus of this. Um, but going to your broader question, you know, going back even before NetBank, yeah, I think it, everyone needs a couple of really good mentors in their, in their careers, and I had, had a number of those. I was very lucky, uh, particularly in my, in, uh, before Ned, Ned Bank, I went through a couple of other banks, and before that I was at Anglo-American. And in the Anglo-American uh, large corporation, in order to get ahead, you have to be, from a, just from a pure bureau- bureaucracy point of view, affiliated to the right people, and, and I was just lucky, and I ended up uh, working for a number of brilliant minds who not only were they brilliant, but they were willing to kind of share their views. Uh, so it wasn't just kind of sitting in a corner and, uh, and churning out documentation. It was actually getting involved in the, in the formulation of thoughts and formulation of business strategies and the like. And I think that's vital for any kind of young person growing up and wanting to make a career for themselves in the business world. If you don't have some form of guidance from people who are willing to share with you, you really find yourself up against it. So I think that, f- that 
process formulated a lot of my views going forward. And strange to say it, but Anglo gave me the yearning to want to become an owner or runner of a smaller business, uh, notwithstanding the size of a corporation it was, because there was just such a lot of business activity taking place in a massive conglomerate of that nature uh, that you got to see really interesting stuff. So Interesting you say that because except for co-founding convergence partners, history on paper doesn't suggest you're particularly entrepreneurial, well at least in a traditional sense. So you've started to give me insight into where that started to happen. So where did this whole entrepreneurship thing really begin for you? Are you an entrepreneur? Do you consider yourself an entrepreneur? I do, but uh, there is a caveat to that, which is that an entrepreneur in the sense that I'm comfortable as a being an expert within an entrepreneurial field. So first having to build that level of expertise to be able to feel confident to be able to run a business like this, which is complex. Um, that took many, many years to get uh, get to a point of, of comfort that you had the technical skills and capabilities to be able to do that. But it did actually, the sort of thought around running and owning my own business started my first job, actually. So the first thing I did when I was uh, training to be a chartered accountant and doing my, my articles, I worked for a small audit firm down in Durban. And uh, it was a two-partner firm. And halfway through my articles, it split. And it became a rather strange beast, a one-partner firm. I don't know if that makes any sense. But uh, uh, in that, I really had to kind of take charge of a lot of operational stuff within the organization. So it wasn't just suddenly I was an article clerk who was thrust into having to run and lead part of a business, which is a sort of early 20-something was pretty daunting for me. But it taught me quite some valuable lessons about you know, what one is capable of, you know, uh, even at an early stage. So from that time, I was almost sort of plotting forward a, a route to how do I get back to that small organization where I can really wrap my arms around it and, and take charge. So it was always planted from that point in time, and then was putting in place the building blocks to get there and feel comfortable with it. Tell me a little bit about Convergence Partners and uh, what it is you do and how it is you go about doing it. All right, so Convergence Partners, we're an investment company. From the get-go, we decided to invest only in the ICT sector across Africa. Uh, so we specialist investors, if you like. Why? why? Why the ICT sector? What did you see that perhaps other people didn't? Yeah, so there's two things there, really. One is the, uh, the fact that it was this partnership between myself and Andile. And both of us had been, Andile particularly, obviously, had been, uh, his whole life had been the ICT sector, so it's what he knew, understood, loved. I'd spent an enormous amount of time of my investment banking career involved in ICT sector type activities. Yeah, and for me, ICT is really such a critical enabler, both here in South Africa as well as across the continent. I think people fall into the trap of thinking of ICT as this specific sector, but really it sits within an ecosystem that enables pretty much every other aspect of the economy. Um, so that's how we see it. We see it as a being this kind of almost a utility, uh, sort of a critical needs enabler um, to generate opportunities across all sectors of the economy. Um, so it's an exciting place to be. One of the primary reasons we decided to focus on, on not only on RCT, but some of the subsectors within RCT that we decided to focus on was how we, uh, we saw the changes coming in the sector, both the market change in terms of the take-up of smartphones and the, the, the move towards broadband and and all of these good things, but also from a regulatory point of view and from the point of view of the, uh, how the players were feeling 
certain pressures within the ICT market and what role we could play to release some of those pressures. So it was really the sector we understood the best, but also where we had the most excitement in terms of the opportunity that was presenting itself. But also nine years ago, which is about how long you've been running, correct? Correct, yeah. So we, we really started putting the portfolio together late 2003, early 2004. Convergence Partners came together formally as an organization in, in early 2006, which is when we started raising capital and, and actually putting a team together specifically for this business. Um, so, yeah. So I'd imagine back then the quote-unquote smart money wouldn't have been on your investments delivering the sort of value that you've enjoyed so far. Yeah, well, we obviously backed ourselves to do that, and luckily we found some funders who agreed with us. Um, but I think, you know, the, uh, we, had, we had this vision of, of how things were going to change in the sector. I do believe that a lot of people looked at us sconce at that time and said, are you sure? You know, there was a lot of big balance sheets involved in the ICT sector, building out their own networks, particularly the mobile operators. Why was that going to change? So a lot of it was forward thinking in terms of how we saw these trends uh, coalescing and causing some tensions in the market that were that needed to be resolved. Um, and I think it's been proven you know, in terms of our, uh, the original thesis has now come through. You basically run two major funds or portfolios which include the likes of uh, Dimension Data, Seacom, uh, Fiberco. Uh, you know, break it down for us in terms of sharing a little bit about the nature of these funds. Sure. So we've really got, as you say, we've got two, we've got two balance sheets here. The, the legacy balance sheet, which was the original Convergence Partners that we put together in 2006. Um, that was very much a broadly TNT-focused investment holding company operating along private equity lines in the sense that we take minority investments by and large in the businesses we invest in, draw down capital to make those investments. But we got to a point a couple of years ago where that balance sheet was somewhat constrained relative to the size of the opportunities we're starting to see, particularly in, in, in telecoms infrastructure type uh, opportunities. Now, these are big ticket projects. You know, when you're building out fiber networks or launching satellites, um, there's a lot of capital that needs to be put to work. So we then commenced the process to raise a second balance sheet, which is more classically a private equity fund. Um, and these two pools of capital exist side by side. The way they sort of break down is that the, um, is the private equity fund, the, the new source of capital, which is a $200 million fund. The investment theme there is very much linked to uh, telecoms infrastructure and opportunities that are heavily dependent or reliant on telecoms infrastructure like a lot of the new financial tech um, uh, opportunities that are starting to uh, be be born out of the sort of telecoms world, um, financial switches and the like. So, so it's not just the network layer, but it's also uh, opportunities that sit over the top that are very reliant on the network layer. Uh, and then the legacy balance sheet, our original balance sheet, then the investment thesis there is much more around everything in the TNT sector that doesn't fall within that definition of telco infrastructure. But the main area of focus there is, is really in the software and apps uh, space. And even there, there's certain themes that we're investing in, whether it's the security layer or big data and analytics. You know, there's a lot of uh, new opportunities that we're starting to see emerging um, for investment in that space. Um, that balance sheet, it, it, it ranges because obviously we've been investing in businesses and, and selling out of businesses there. Uh, that's a RAND-based uh, portfolio. Um, it's sitting at, at about... Two billion rand. What informs uh, the investment choices you make, given we're talking about Africa and how growth here is outpacing growth anywhere in the world? 
everything is technically an opportunity. So how do you narrow it down to the things that you ultimately invest in? Yeah, that's a very good question. And that's, I guess, we hope our secret sauce in a way. I mean, first of all, everything is research-based. So we start off on the principle of we don't wait for opportunities to kind of arrive at our doorstep brought to us by business brokers or advisors and the like. Those things do happen. But very often we find that we, we struggle to make sense of, of some of those opportunities unless we've done uh, primary research into those, those spaces already. So we start off with the research mentality. We both research geographies as to what are the opportunities in specific countries and specific spaces. Those opportunities relate to what's happening from a competitive force, uh, competitive forces in those environments. How's the regulator behaving in those environments? Uh, and then also looking into the future in terms of the technology trends that we see, and then also looking elsewhere across the globe. You know, so a lot of what happens is is not completely unique. And there is an element of trends, following trends elsewhere. So we do that research, and then on the back of that research, we then go out and, and explore and investigate what opportunities are there to invest in those high-growth areas that have arisen out of that research. So that's principally how we go about it. And obviously, we do also have a network of, of people out there who know what it is that we do. And so there is a lot of deal referrals and, and opportunities that come our way as a consequence of, of those people that are on the ground and, and, and know what it is that we're looking to invest in. So it's a combination of those two things, really. I understand that the second fund you mentioned has hit some very important benchmarks in terms of attracting the amount of investment and, and, and in terms of readiness to start to, to, to pour it out into all these deserving projects across you know, the, co the continent. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, maybe I should start by saying that if uh, any of the, your listeners uh, want to go out and raise a private equity fund, don't do it, guys. If you've got an existing balance sheet, stick to that. It's really, really tough going actually raising money, which is surprising in a way because I think the, the growth story for the African continent is, uh, is, a, is a sound one. But also, I, I'd find that surprising coming from you given some of the success stories. I mean, some of your concluded business deals include, you know, deals with, you know, that involve the likes of South Africa's Telcom, Vodacom, Integrate, um, Nedbank. I mean, one might imagine with that sort of with that sort of success in the bag, you, 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 I mean, people practically be begging you to take their money to invest it for them. That would be nice, yes. But uh, and look, those things were an advantage. I don't think we would have even got even got an audience with some of the parties ultimately invested with us. Was it not for our track record and what we'd done? It also reminded me I didn't really answer one of your previous questions. So some of those assets that you're talking about and the ones you've just mentioned now, they all really sit on our legacy balance sheet other than the Fiberco initiative. Um, so really the, the, the private equity fund, the infrastructure fund, uh, is something that's uh, are still very much open for business and open for, for investments. Um, there's a, a number of investments we have already made, um, but uh, there's still significant amounts of capital to, to put to work there. Fundraising, as I say, is, it's, not, it's, it's not particularly uh, easy. I'm pleased to say that we're now over the line. How we, how we put our fund together is we had some first closed targets in mind to get to a certain minimum amount of capital before we considered ourselves ready for, for investing and, and open for business. We got to that mark in uh, October 2013. And uh, yeah, so we've been investing out of the fund since then. But uh, just this week now, we've announced that we've got over the line with our final fund close. Um, the investors that have backed us are very much a global 
global base of investors have come, come into the fund with us and supported us. A large grouping of global development finance institutions, uh, starting with the IFC, part of the World Bank, um, the CDC, uh, which is the, the UK developmental funding organization, the FMO out of Holland, the European Investment Bank, uh, the DBSA here in South Africa. Um, and then we've paired that then with, uh, with non-DFI-styled monies, including our own balance sheet. We've put our own, our own money into the fund as well. Uh, and uh, top that up with uh, the likes of the PRC who manage the Government Employees Pension Fund here in South Africa, uh, and there's a fund of funds player that's also recently joined us. Uh, so it's a combination of, of development monies as well as more, I guess what one would describe as commercial institutional style monies, and our own balance sheet that's, uh, that's behind the fund. Is this the type of fund that takes money from individual investors who are looking to, to invest? Uh, I ask this because I imagine given how the project's you invest in are linked to public interest. It, it'd be interesting to me to know how many, say, individuals in their personal capacity are invested. No, none at all. So the private equity world doesn't really lend itself to kind of the retail investor. Um, I think it's changing, but it's a changing in an indirect way. So you're seeing a number of institutions now that are doing, if you like, classic unit trust style funds, uh, which they're putting into the retail market, but those funds are then invested in, in, in private equity type organizations and funds. So I think it's changing, but for the time being, there's, there's very little direct uh, individual investment in, in the PE world, and, and we certainly don't have in our fund. Right, and you use some jargon. I can't remember whether you said you made, you made the line, or how did you put it? Yeah, we got, we got over the line. So you got over the line. What does that mean? We had in mind a certain team size and a certain footprint of, of our capability on the ground across Africa. Um, and you know, to tackle, and you described it well earlier, this kind of enormous opportunity that's out there in a sensible way. You need a certain resource base to be able to do that. And that included also expanding our footprint to have formal offices on the ground elsewhere in the continent. So we've just going through a process now of, of setting up shop in, in Lagos. One needed to get to a certain fund size to be able to afford that resource base because the PE fund management world is fee dependent. So the fee base that you have is dependent on the amount of capital you raise. The fee base then determines the size of team you can have and the footprint you can have. So that's that's how we looked at it. We said, to make sense of this, we need a, a certain size resource that requires us to have a certain size fund. We stuck to our guns on that. We, we kind of said, well, we could have closed uh, the fund earlier and said, well, we, we'll start with what we've got. Uh, we decided not to do that because we really wanted we wanted to make sure that we could generate the type of returns to our investors that we've told them that we would. In practical terms, do you sit on the money? Is it commitments until you're ready to go? What about the investors who come on early? Don't they get ang- antsy if the money doesn't get put to work immediately? What sort of constraints do you play in, in that? Ter- in, you know, practically speaking. Yeah. As I said earlier, we've got they had the sort of first close, second close approach. So. Those early stage investors that came on board up to that October 2013 date, uh, their monies were available to us immediately and we could start investing and we did start investing immediately. So they didn't have to kind of sit back and wait while the rest of the fund was being raised. Yeah, so on that first part of the question, then we, it's not a, we haven't raised the money and sitting on it as a sort of slush fund. It's it's committed capital. Uh, We've got a a five-year period during which we invest that capital and where we're entitled to draw down from the institutions that have invested in us. Um, we have some rights to be able to extend that period if, if we need to. And, and that's how it works. So as, as we find investable opportunities, 
we then approach our investors um, on a, and it's basically a blind investment pool. So once those investment opportunities have cleared certain internal hurdles, uh, we're able to approach our investors and, and, and require them, in fact, uh, to put monies in on a pre-committed ratio as between them. So that's how it operates. To our listeners now in, in West Africa, or at least with interest in West Africa, it's probably a time they need to start to listen really closely because um, this particular fund has quite an emphasis, I believe, um, on development uh, and uh, investment in that part of the world. You mentioned uh, opening an office in Lagos, and I believe you're using quite a few locals um, as part of that process. Tell me why West Africa, and uh, tell us some of the what we can look forward to in terms of the, your investments there. We've we've actually been invested in West Africa for for some years now. Um, not directly as in our own balance sheet taking investments in the West African region, but through our, our portfolio. So many of the portfolio companies that we've invested in have grown into that region. So I think in the first place, uh, in the first instance, we've become comfortable with the West African region just simply because of, um, of seeing what's happened within our portfolio. It, it's an exciting place right now. I mean, there's a, if you just look at the sort of overarching economic growth statistics and some of the, uh, the the kind of population growth and, and population change statistics that are happening in some of those uh, those economies, it's it's really interesting. Thirdly, there's been some interesting kind of political changes um, that uh, that are taking place there. Uh, a lot more s- stability coming to the region politically. Um, and then, lastly, and by no means least importantly, in our space, it's a very very dynamic and and rapidly changing environment. So. You take a place like Nigeria, which is an area where we're investing right now. You take a population of that of that size and scale, um, and relate that back to the availability of telecoms infrastructure in that market. There's a there's a huge challenge for Nigeria, um, and I think it's recognised as a challenge both by the operators on the ground there, the regulator, government. Um, so there's a lot of uh, positive initiatives. Uh, taking place both to create friendly investor in investment regime as well as uh, a friendly telco regulatory environment. Um, so, you know, for us, it's uh, we start by looking at the macro picture in in, in West Africa, and it, uh, that excites us. And then we start drilling down into the more micro situation of of what what are the key drivers for us as an investor. Uh, yeah, it's 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 an environment that we're very excited about. So. Obviously, we, in a fund like ours, we, we do need to invest um, broadly across sub-Saharan Africa, so we can't uh, put all of our capital to work in any one country. Uh, but for now, the opportunities that pres- have presented themselves and the, and the type of activities we're seeing in West Africa are, are very much in the sweet spot for us. And have you decided what it is you're going to go into? Are you, are you free to speak about it? Or are you shopping for deals, and should people be uh, <laughs> trying to ma- take a meeting with you? Uh, uh, how should I tackle that? So the answer is yes. <laughs> no, so we we are actively in, engaged in a number of, of transactions in that region at the moment. A few in Nigeria, one in Cameroon, one in Ghana. Uh, we're looking at Ivory Coast. So it's a combination of opportunities we are looking to unearth ourselves as well as live transactions that we're currently working on. Can you at least tell us the size or the scale at which you're sort of playing at now, just to give us an idea of what sort of deals we're talking about? Typically, the, the normal sort of deal ticket for us is in the 20 to $30 million range. Uh, that's what we're comfortable investing off our own balance sheet, bearing in mind that we are 
minority investors by and large. Um, so often we're speaking for transaction sizes that are many multiples of that, you know, 100, 200, 300 million dollar transaction sizes, um, which given that we're infrastructure investors, that's the type of, of, of project size that one often sees. In terms of the themes that we're seeing, it, it's very, very broad ranging. So you know, we're seeing opportunities to invest directly in pure telco infrastructure. We're seeing a lot of fiber opportunities, a lot of data center opportunities, um, a lot of wireless uh, network opportunities. Um, we're also seeing a lot of very interesting over-the-top players, um, particularly in, in this new emerging uh, fintech space. When I talk about regulators creating a friendly investor uh, environment, it's not necessarily only telco regulators, but in some instances banking and financial sector regulators as well. Uh, so if you look again in a place like Nigeria, uh, there's a very interesting dynamic at play there where um, the sort of new emerging uh, mobile financial services um, is not necessarily just locked into the mobile players because uh, the regulator there has taken an active decision uh, to open up that market to other players. Uh, which I think uh, all credit to them because I think creating that competition between the banks, the mobile operators and uh, new emerging tech players creates an environment where something will emerge which will ultimately be beneficial to the people of Nigeria. Well, please don't tell me you're, you're, you're part of this feeding frenzy that current, that's currently happening around mobile money. How much of an opportunity do you see in money remittance opportunities and, and, and money transfer, you know, m mobile money opportunities? Yeah, so for us, we, we tend to shy away from the direct consumer-facing type players. Uh, the, where we operate, where we feel most comfortable is in, in either wholesale or enterprise-facing businesses, so more B2B type activities, so the technology layer that makes these things happen rather than the actual uh, consumer-facing environment. So I think what we're avoiding through that is some of the froth that you're talking about. I mean, some of the multiples at which we see some of these deals happening terrifies us, I'll be honest. Overheating, I'm sure. Yeah, well, I think, I think the problem for it is that not, not all of these players can be winners. So the ones that are ultimately emerging as winners, the prices that have been paid will probably prove to be cheap. It's whether, it's, it's the, it's whether one can back the right horse at this early stage in that game, I think, uh, is, is what would worry us. That's why for us to look, look in a wholesale kind of platform play, which is serving all of these players, starts becoming irrelevant who the winners and losers are at the, at the thin end of the wedge, which is at the customer-facing edge. Um, if we can find op opportunities to serve all of them uh, from a technology point of view, we'd rather do that. Hence the research, I guess, and I imagine everything you've said uh, leads me to believe this fund is a conservative one. It's at the cutting edge, certainly in terms of being involved in ICT, but conservative in many respects. Yeah, I think we'd call ourselves prudent. I mean, I think when you look at some of the greenfields type investments that we've made, uh, and we've done a number of them, so we're not, we're not scared of greenfields. We will do early stage investing. Um, but we won't, uh, we won't do that unless we ourselves can get engaged deeply in those activities and actually be able to kind of assist in the whole project management and project development. And also we would only do these Greenfields type activities when there are ready customers. So if you look at what we did in our new dawn satellite or in our Seacom Fiber or in Fiberco, we have pre-sold massive capacity on all of these networks before we even commence the construction period. Um, and that's how we operate. We, you know, we're not in the build it and they'll come uh, type mentality. Prudent is probably a, a fair term. Having said that, 
we're not so prudent that we don't generate decent returns. So we, we're looking for higher returns in a prudent way. Based on everything you've said, how much maintenance is involved in your investment style? Do you micromanage on any level? How involved do you get in the day-to-day of any given investment? Yeah, so we're not, we're not day-to-day managers. We just don't have the resources to be able to do that. It's not our style. But we do get very deeply engaged in the businesses we invest in. So we're hands-on as investors. Yeah, I think we, have, as a, we have a rule that says that if the management teams of the companies we've invested in don't willingly, and that's the term that I use, they don't willingly want us to come along on their annual stra- strategic planning kind of internal conferences, there's something wrong. So we don't force our, um, our kind of capabilities and skill sets on, on management teams, but generally they see us as being uh, an added benefit to their business and would drag us along for, for those type of discussions for sure. So, uh, so we get involved but mostly in strategy, um, in assisting businesses in relationships with their regulators, relationships with their financiers. The other thing that we look for in investment opportunities, having done all the research, even if we find a great opportunity in a space that we're interested in, if they don't have good management, we won't go there. So it starts off by having faith and trust in a good management team. Let them do what they need to do on a day-to-day basis. We'll supplement where necessary. If they reach out to us and they need assistance to find new executives, um, business development people, finance people, whatever it may be, we'll help. Uh, but we don't want to get involved on day-to-day stuff. I'm glad you said that. I almost imagined you, you had a, a dark night uh, who, who gallops off across the continent attending board meetings and striking fear in corporate teams all over the continent. Well, the, the only dark night that I can talk of is I go back to the coloring and book you mentioned. So what I had in mind was my Batman coloring and books. Those are what the, the ones that used to float my boat as a kid. All of two colors, black and yellow. <laughs> and gray. And gray. I'm an old guy, so Batman in those days wore gray with black underpants. He wasn't really dressed in all black like he is nowadays. And a little bit of blue. A little bit of blue, maybe. Maybe, and I could... <laughs> I don't recall blue. Yeah, I'm a gothic through and through, so my punk days and my band and uh, my Batman days as a kid, black and grey, have featured heavily, I guess. So it was a punk rock band? It was a punk rock band. What did you call yourselves? They always had, like, diabolic names. Well, this one's called Eve's Desire. So, yeah, you always come up with something biblical, I guess. As a go- <laughs> did you get Eve's permission? <laughs> no, no, I don't know if she trademarked it. And uh, <laughs> we had one album, a cassette only released, called The Fragments of the Hologram Rose. A bit out there, I guess. That sounds very deep. <laughs> <laughs> we tried. We were <laughs> okay. Well, look, I have to ask about politics, because after all, TIA. You know what that means? Uh, no. This is Africa, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I now know. Good, good. So, I mean, I, I, I think I, I mentioned it in passing earlier. You're dealing with infrastructure deals happening across the continent. Lots of public interest. Uh, I'd imagine lots of public funds invested in a lot of these projects. And, uh, and I'm sure many of them are wrapped in, in political layers that make it difficult for anyone to make money. But also uh, that these projects are what hopefully when they succeed for the public good. Do you ever find there's a conflict between the profit motive and perhaps a public interest motive when you're investing in some of these things? Yeah, not really. I mean, I think the, the, first of all, the sort of public sector touch points for our business are maybe less than you would imagine. So it's very much around the regulatory framework in in a country. What's their policy around broadband? What's their policy around wholesale pricing? What's the policy around 
uh, rights of way in terms of network build and the like. So those are really the touch points for us into, if you like, the public sector. Um, most of the businesses we invest in are, as I said earlier, B2B, and the customers are network operators, uh, large corporates and enterprises, global carriers, um, global media and content owners. So we don't necessarily have kind of deep exposure to kind of the public sector in our business. Um, I'm saying that, we, as I said earlier, again, we, we do maintain good disciplined relationships with regulators because at the end of the day, they're a, a strategic relationship partner for us. You, know, you need to maintain those relationships rather than uh, see them as being a police force or in opposition to what you're looking to do. The, the issue around sort of conflict between public interest and, and returns doesn't really exist just yet, uh, and I think that's because the opportunity for for broadband, if you like, um, uh, upliftment is so so big right now, and the numbers are so just so um, so large in terms of needing to bring more and more people on net um, that um, that I think there's still sensible ways to construct projects where they can be money making and return generating for the investors, but still bringing a high quality service and and cheap broadband to people that don't currently have it. And we've seen that in a number of the networks we've invested in to date, is that yeah. the rate at which you bring prices down in the broadband environment is heavily uh, surpassed by the rate at which demand takes up, up, up volume. Um, so you're still getting very positive growth uh, in these networks. And what are some of the more promising trends in, in terms of policy making that y you're seeing on the African continent? Uh, we reported uh, on our sister podcast, the African Tech Roundup, very recently on the Ugandan government declaring... Uh, mobile money activities by the mobile networks illegal because their licenses, you know, were issued for telecoms and not, you know, not finance. And of course, I know you don't, based on what you say, you don't play in the consumer space necessarily. But um, certainly, um, you are probably at, the, you know, you, you probably have a finger to the pulse of policy making in general across the continent. What are some of the the things that you feel are, are encouraging in terms of trends? Yeah. Look, it's not. Across the board, it's not homogenous, of course. You know, different regulators, different policymakers are adopting very different views of things. So it's not always easy to, to kind of come up with a uniform approach to investing in, in, ac across multiple territories. Um, yeah, I think on uh, what's encouraging, I think, is the degree of liberalization, which is still continuing in, in, in many of the markets that we, we're involved in, um, and a recognition that uh, the private sector can do an effective job in, in bringing um, communications and, and, and broadband to, to markets and with limited government interference. I think, though, there, there needs to be a recognition by regulators on some of the levers that they still have available to them, even in a liberalized environment. And the one bugbear of ours is, uh, is, is spectrum policy because uh, the African environment, by and large, people will be reached with a wireless solution for broadband. Um, but Spectrum is a finite um, uh, asset. And unless regulators and policymakers are very, very careful on how they manage this finite asset, they can find themselves shortchanging their, their people. So we get very frustrated with regulators who see Spectrum auctions being more of a money-making opportunity than an opportunity to kind of impose requirements for spreading the reach of broadband networks. So that's something that we motivate for across the board to various degrees of success. 
I think it's the dialogue's changing. I think regulators are actually starting to realise this, um, that uh, they're not doing. You know, it's uh, it's it's great to bring into treasuries um, short-term gain from spectrum auctions, but the long-term effect is is pretty adverse. And uh, more and more, you're starting to see regulators think in that way. The nationalist in me, is, of course, is going, Milcom, Milcom. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> no, look, I think, I think there's a, a balance to be struck here, right, is that the um, policymakers really do need to make sure that they don't take so much value off the table in terms of the auction processes that they leave very little in the balance sheets of these players to actually build the networks that they need to build. The other encouraging thing we're seeing is, is more and more and more uh, regulators are realizing the only way to reach some of the currently unreached populations is by forcing a dialogue around uh, network sharing and shared infrastructure, uh, which we're really very much at the forefront of because we're building networks that kind of serve multiple players on a wholesale basis. So you know, we kind of obviously support the regulators in, in that view. And the, the ec economics are such that that's really the only way in which some of these people are going to be reached with proper services. Um, and you think people need convincing still? I think some regulators need convincing. Yeah, some regulators, we still see regulators that believe that the state-owned incumbent is the only delivery mechanism for certain layers of the network infrastructure. Our view is the complete opposite of that. Um, so it, again, it differs from, from country to country. Certain regulators, it's very easy to have that discussion with. Others just don't get it yet. They'll change. So last week we covered the fact that Seacom has uh, reportedly become uh, Africa's only telecom enabler and network provider with points of presence in all five of Europe's busiest centers for internet traffic, namely Stockholm, Amsterdam, London, Frankfurt, uh, Marseille. And um, in both macro and micro terms, and of course I know you can't speak on behalf of Seacom, but it being one of your more high-profile investments, how, how does this give Seacom an advantage over its competitors, one? Uh, and two, what can CECOM clients look forward to in terms of you know, network clients perhaps uh, and end users, like a guy like me sitting here in Joburg? Yeah, CECOM has been a, been a great, great story, both for us as investors as well as generally for the, for the telco market, particularly in East Africa. I think the first, part, uh, first way to answer your question is to f consider who is a competitor of CECOM. Because CECOM is quite unique in this environment uh, in the sense that it's an independent uh, undersea fiber optic network, whereas all of the others are, are what, what's called consortium cables. So in that sense, CECOM doesn't compete head-on-head -head with those systems as, uh, as competitors. It competes head-on-head -head with the shareholders of those systems who have access to uh, the underlying capacity of that network through by virtue of being shareholders in, in, in those systems. Th what that means for CECOM is that CECOM can create a complete ecosystem within it because um, it's not... Uh, if you like, a collection of independent states. Um, it is one sol one solution provider in the market with a network that is now both undersea and terrestrial. And Seacom's continued to look at ways in which it can enhance its offering to the market, both in terms of network reach, um, and a lot of that has been terrestrial network reach, uh, redundancy in terms of being able to offer multiple diverse routes to its customers, as well as then in terms of international reach, which is the point you're talking about. Um, so CECOM fights above its weight because I think it's recognized by global carriers and global internet exchanges as being a key component of the African broadband story. Um, so a lot of global content owners 
um, have uh, have entered into what uh, free peering arrangements with CECOM, notwithstanding that CECOM is a very very much a consumer of international content rather than a deliverer of African content. It's something that we're looking to to address the readdress that balance. And I think as more and more African content starts getting generated, clearly then that balance will, will change, which is I think is why these global players have such an interest in dealing with CECOM on a free exchange point of view, even though economically it doesn't make sense for them to do so. So in order to interact with those global players, though, CECOM needs to be in as many of these meet me global meet me points and global internet exchange points as possible because that's where it picks up this content, picks up the traffic. So CECOM will continue to, to grow into different areas, grow into different product sets, grow into different solutions. We're hopeful that it will be a continued growth and success story for the African market for, for many years to come, actually. So CECOM sits on our legacy uh, balance sheet, and, and that's the intention. It will stay there. You just called me on what makes CECOM unique. It's uh, certainly a unique proposition I hadn't quite understood in the way you've just described. What makes uh, your business unique. From what I understand, some of your, your ICT funds are some of the biggest on the continent, I believe. Uh, I don't know how they fare in terms of how uh, of investment that's coming from outside Africa. What, do, what, do, what is your stance towards that, and how do you intend to remain relevant? Yeah, so the, I think in the first instance, uh, to answer the first part of the question about what's our natural advantage, I think it's our people. Yeah, so we've got a, a group of skilled individuals, know what they're doing, know this geography, know the technologies involved in, uh, in the investments that we make, uh, can speak knowledge about the sector, about the geographies, about the regulations. Um, so yeah, I think that, that's a benefit of being focused. Um, the second part of that is that we don't really, a, a lot of people ask me, who do we see as our competition? And the truth is we don't. We don't believe we have competition, which is not an arrogant statement to say that we're the best or the brightest. It's more that we don't compete. We prefer to collaborate. So other sources of funding, both domestic as well as international, very often see us as being a preferred partner when they want to invest in businesses that are in our sphere. How did you capture that positioning? Yeah, I think... Part of the, the the second part to being a research-led organization was also to be a, an outwardly seen to be a thought leader in the in the industry. So yeah, at the outset, we started publishing our own research reports, which were disseminated widely. Uh, we were often sort of uh, muscled our way into various dialogues uh, that were taking place either at conferences or w in the media. Um, so increasingly, we sort of created this, uh, this presence for ourselves around being recognized experts in our field. You had dinner with enemies. Yeah. Or you turned potential enemies into friends by having dinner with them and having chats with them and, 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 and serving them uh, with the type of information they couldn't get on their own or certainly they weren't researching themselves. Yeah, it started off with us re reaching out to them and telling people what it is we could do as partners for them. More, more often than not now, it's the other way around, where, where people reach out to us and say, well, we're looking at this, what do you think? Uh, either to seek out our view or to seek out a partnership with us as a co-investor with them. I'd like to ask, uh, in sort of winding down, uh, what you consider to be, what's your favorite trend in, in the ICT scene? You don't have to speak now as the CEO of, of Convergence Partners. Yeah, and actually I was going to start off by saying it's not something we've invested in as yet. We've looked at various opportunities in the space, but uh, uh, the thing that fascinates me a great deal right now is 
this idea of using tech as a platform for improving education. And uh, yeah, we, we've seen a number of initiatives of, of guys out there trying to get certain things going. And, uh, and it's really becoming an exciting area. Because if you think about it, you've got that many kids out there needing education, but not enough teachers who are able to serve that education to them and not enough quality institutions of learning to be able to provide it. Um, so I think tech affords a unique opportunity to kind of deliver in a, in a mass way a quality service and a quality offering. And uh, so we, in, our, in our, some of our foundation and CSI initiatives, we've done one or two things, but uh, we're really looking for some credible opportunities to back in a, in, from an investment point of view. So whether it's guys who are out there who are trying to create sort of tablet-based curriculum uh, and then distributing tablets to schools to allow kids to learn off a tablet platform with teachers being more supervisors than, than teachers in a classic sense, um, or you know, whether it's live video feeds of quality lectures um, from anywhere in the globe, uh, whether it's initiatives like TED or uh, Wikipedia for uh, feature phones and stuff like that. You know, there's really, really some interesting things happening. Interesting you say that. Uh, my wife and I were driving the other day, and we happened to be driving behind a Vitz University bus. She's a Vitzy, and she's like, oh, yeah. And I'm like, uh, I'm not. And, <laughs> and so anyway, so, and I just, it occurred to me. <laughs> Do you have something to say about this? Uh, no, I'm a Unisa guy, so uh, I, ca I can't even speak for what it's like to be on a university campus, but I can imagine. Are you serious? I'm held of a college all the way, so anyway. So, um, uh, shout out quick, yeah. So no, anyway, I, I just, it just occurred to me as we're driving that um, varsity, quote-unquote varsity, is, is going to look very different in the next five to ten years, I think. You know, so, and what you're saying is certainly affirming that, 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 that notion. Yeah, I think that's right. I think you're going to find different models are going to emerge. There's going to be the pure online university. So I think the pure model is going to be the rarity. The pure online university and the pure campus university are going to be the outliers. And in between, you're going to find these hybrids uh, where you're going to have sort of physical locations where students meet, but a lot of their materials is, is presented in, online, in, in an online fashion. Um, or... Um, more sort of MBA-style student affiliation groups that get together from time to time, but by and large their lectures and, and studies is online. So I think there's going to be that kind of a combination emerging. It's just a numbers game, right? You just cannot afford the number of campuses and the number of schools that you have to create for the kids that are going to be coming on stream into, into the education process. Right. Do you have any pets? I do have pets. I'm a dog guy. How many dogs? I have two dogs. What kind? They're both German hunting breeds, which doesn't really speak to the way in which I, uh, <laughs> I don't run around the suburb hunting stuff with my dogs. It's a Varmarana and a German short-haired pointer. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, uh, what's the last movie you watched? The last movie I watched? I'm trying to remember the name of it now. There was a, a movie on DSTV box office recently uh, about this guy. He was a sort of down-and-out fellow, and then he went, it was going around... Doing a little bit, I guess, what you do in a way, but in a way less sophisticated and a more crass fashion. And he was a podcaster. He was well. He was more doing live camera work for uh, for local TV channels, but seeking out the uh, the darker side of life in in the evenings, car crashes and robberies and uh, murders and the like. And, and and it was just how 
that whole thing twisted his mind. What the hell was it called? It was a great movie. Well, you just inspired me. I might just, uh, <laughs> who knows? They might never hear this. <laughs> Not now. It was called Nightcrawler. That was the movie. Ah, Nightcrawler. Okay, fantastic. Well, final question. Is there a question I perhaps didn't ask that you wish I had? Well, uh, when, uh, when I was told about this interview, I was told in a previous interview, it asked somebody what they would advise their 10-year-old self. Ah, there's a good one. So I was expecting that question, which is a very good question. So I prepared for that one. Ah, so I will, I will humor you then, sir. So what would you tell your 10-year-old self? I would tell the 10-year-old Brandon Doyle that the age of the introvert is, on, is upon us and not to worry because soon things will change. Yeah, I grew up in uh, at, uh, my high school years were the early 80s and uh, my formative uh, work years were the late uh, late 80s, early 90s. You just come out of this kind of crazy, yuppie era, era where everyone who succeeded was an extrovert and the guy who shouted out the loudest was the guy who won won the day. And uh, and it was terrifying as an introvert growing up that that was kind of what was happening and uh, that those sort of behaviors didn't come naturally. The truth is now, I think with what's happening in the world, with all this digitization and all this uh, overload of information and stuff that's kind of just you have to sift through on a daily basis um, I think I think that whole world is inverting and you know nobody now wants another loud mouth on top of all that stuff that they're getting on a daily basis and the introverts are back and if you look at what's happening globally a lot of the people who are really fundamentally changing the world particularly in the RCT space many of them are introverts with well save for Donald Trump <laughs> that's a joke people yeah, yeah well donald trump's a good example of the extrovert i'm talking about right there the era is over so anyone out there who's feeling anxious that they a little bit shy or a little bit uh feel that they can't keep pace with the uh, with the more forward speaking loudmouth folk out there stick to it stick to your guns there uh, the quieter more considered um uh, thought-provoking people are, are coming to the fore. I think in our, in our own country, South Africa, if you look at the political change uh, in the early 90s, Mandela's a great example of this. I mean, there's a world leader who comes across fundamentally as an introverted man and, and a more inward-thinking man than an outward-spoken man. Well, certainly I have a feeling if he had met you today, he'd be pretty impressed. So uh, thank you very much for having this chat with us. And... Um, yeah, to your 10-year-old self, well, you did good, boy. You did good. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks, Andila. Thank you for listening to African Tech Conversation.